Welcome to Dispatch In Depth, where we give you the stories behind the science of emergency dispatch. This is an official podcast of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, the world's leading authority in dispatch science. I'm your host, Becca Barris, writer and copy editor for the Journal of Emergency Dispatch. In each episode, we'll be bringing you stories of the fascinating people who work in this area. We'll give you their backstory, including how they got there, what they're working on, and what drew them to the field. These are people who represent the cutting edge in emergency dispatch, and I hope you'll join us to hear more about them. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth. Today, I'm talking with another podcast host. Amanda Lindgren has been in 911 for eight years and has worked as a call taker and dispatcher and is now a public educator with the El Paso Teller County 911 Authority in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Before working in emergency response, she earned a Bachelor of Science in Marketing from Minnesota State University. And as mentioned, she's the host, technical director, and producer of the podcast 911 Weight in Gold. Also with us is Ben Bills, who manages the community outreach programs for El Paso and Teller counties. He's worked with the 911 industry for 21 years as a call taker, dispatcher, and trading coordinator, and in his current role as public information officer, or PIO, for El Paso Teller County 911 Authority. Today we're going to be talking about El Paso Teller's public outreach program. Welcome Amanda and Ben. Thanks Thank for, having for having us. us. A question I like to ask my guests is how both of you got into 911 and then also how you got into your current position. So, Amanda, why don't we start with you? Sure. So, I had just graduated college and I was working as an event planner at the time. I saw a position open for a dispatcher at the sheriff's office here in the Springs and applied, got the position. I loved all of, you know, the benefits and all that kind of stuff that that you're drawn to the position for initially. And then after being there for a few weeks, I just, uh, I fell in love with the career and I found some purpose and meaning and it really puts things into perspective of what's important now. And so I stayed in it and my current position is a public educator with Ben. And that is through the 911 authority, the El Paso Teller County 911 authority that provides services for uh, the PSAPs here in El Paso and Teller counties. So we have seven PSAPs and we provide services such as quality assurance, GIS, IT, admin, public education. So when the position became available, I just wanted to, to further my knowledge of 911. And here we are today. And when Ben took me in under his wing. We had so many dreams and we've made so many of those happen, especially over the last year that I, we haven't been able to make happen since I started. It's been a little over three years. And so we finally started getting some of these dreams off the ground. And I don't know, when I started, I think we were called the dream team or something and <laughs> it just keeps getting better. So yeah, I'll let Ben go. So before I got into 911, I worked in a 50s diner uh, and I was <laughs> slinging eggs and hash browns and, and the burger and fry nights. And 
This was back in the day when jobs were posted in newspapers. I saw my dad had saw an, an article that the sheriff's office was hiring the same one Amanda worked at. And I thought, there's no way I could get that job. I'd like to make a change, but I just knew restaurant work was not for me. So I applied for it and I was, I couldn't even give a two weeks notice how fast they turned it around and got me hired. I already did. They did a background, threw me in the little lie detector chair. I had to take some tests and boom, I was starting July 31st of 2000. I was hired as a call taker and a dispatcher. I did that job there for six years, and then I really enjoyed the training component of it. So I took a role at the sheriff's office here at El Paso County as the training coordinator. I worked with all the new people, getting them the foundation they needed to go to the floor to do the on-the-job training. And for a couple of years while I was doing that, I was also involved with the sheriff's office education team. They had a robot that was going out, and they did a couple events a year, but I really enjoyed talking to the public, especially like elementary school age children. It's, I just am a five-year-old trapped in a 44-year-old person's body. I act like a child sometimes, <laughs> really but I can get so on their funny. level. Amanda, mute your, no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, in 2008, the, the job opened up over here at the El Paso Teller County 911 Authority. And uh, at the time they were all contracted employees. So it was really tough for me to say, ooh, do I want to go as a contract worker and I'll take a little bit of a hit for this. But I did it. And now I've been doing this since 2008, doing education in the schools and in the community. And this is probably the best job that I've ever had. Cool. That's really cool. So I listened to the episode that you did with Amanda for 911 Weight in Gold, and I I snagged some details from that and some questions from that. So when you were talking about your training for 911, you're colorblind. I am. We're jumping right in. We're jumping it. right in. So <laughs> they had a question, right, where they had words written out and it said, you know, blue, yellow, green or whatever. And you were supposed to write the color that the word was, but not the color that the word said. And right. one of the things that International Academies is doing lately is kind of challenging the idea that a dispatcher looks one way, right? Or functions one way. So we're reaching out to people and just trying to get more a more inclusive view of who dispatchers are. So I mean, colorblindness, you don't think about it, but there are so many buttons and switches and colors on the CAD and on the computer. How have you been able to navigate that? It's a good question that you bring that up because in 2002, it was shortly after I started there, they did a CAD upgrade. They switched vendors and went to a Windows-based CAD system from a DOS-based system. And we went from the, I don't even know what the, I act like I know it was Whatever color, it was a black screen with some light color text on it. I think it's usually green, but the new CAD was Windows-based, and there was a ton of colors on it. The calls mm -hmm. were stacked by a priority, and the top one, I, it seemed like it, it was the gray family to me, uh, but they were like grays, yellows, oranges. In the long run, I told them they didn't have to make any changes, but I was actually missing priority one calls on dispatches because oh. that, that stupid priority one color was blending into the window, and I was missing it. I told them I would just flip my calls around, but... Yeah, I just kind of learned to adapt and overcome with it. So dispatch is the job for me. Being the sniper that may have to handle some situation, probably not so much if we're <laughs> if we're dealing with people with red and green. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's super interesting. Thank you for letting me go on that tangent a little bit. Sure. So one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you at El Paso Teller County 911 Authority is because 
I saw a post on Instagram of your outreach program and you were talking about peak alerts and I just got talking with Amanda and I think it would be really helpful for listeners to hear more about your program. What does it look like? What what do you focus your attention on? So Ben, do you want to share some of the history of how peak alerts kind of got started? So peak alerts came about because uh, the authority picked up an emergency notification system from a vendor in 2006. So we've had one in place for 14 years and it was always referred to as multiple different things. I've seen it referred to as the early warning notification system in some of our documentations. We've called it the emergency notification system. But one thing that was driving me nuts is that we have public service announcement money and not that our organization or domain name is the shortest either. By the time you get out, register for the emergency notification system at the El Paso Teller County 911 Authority at El Paso Teller County 911.org or El Paso Teller. <laughs> you know what I mean? You've yeah, used yeah, up yeah. 20 of your 30 seconds. And one of the gentlemen from our Office of Emergency Management was in a meeting and he said, have you ever thought about brand branding that? program so it's easy to remember and you could get folks to sign up and since pikes peak is a landmark basically between the two counties that we service we landed on peak alerts and then amanda created some sweet graphics to go along with it and peak alerts was born hot dog yeah it was it was a great idea and then that way if we ever move and change softwares we'll always have that same url and the familiarity of peak alerts. And then we do mention the type of software that it's powered by. So that way it doesn't you know, freak people out when they go to peak alerts and it redirects to the software. But it's it's been an ongoing campaign for, I want to say two years now. And yeah, we just keep finding ways to simplify it more and more and more. And it's just been a learning process. So you have to sign up for peak alerts then, right? It's not like one of those messages you got on your phone that's like, hey, you know, severe weather warning or amber alert. So those are through iPods that would trip an entire tower or sometimes even an entire state. Stuff like the amber alerts are sent out at a state level through, for us, at CBI. But these are essentially opt-in users or subscribers. Okay. Currently in our system, we have purchased landline data and business line data, but all of those cell phones were missing. So we've been really encouraging people to opt in. And then the beauty of when they opt in, they can choose how they want to receive the alerts. If they want to just get an email, if they want to get a text message, if they want a call, email, text message app, There, um, there's also an app. And so yeah, uh, it is a little bit different. And then dispatchers, when they are going to send out an activation, they can be very specific with who they're sending it out to. So they could literally just draw a shape over one single house and send it to one person or even select a particular person. But usually it's drawing a shape on a map and selecting their region of who they're going to specifically send it to. Right. So you mentioned that Amber Alerts are issued at the state level. What mm -hmm. kind of alerts would I get from my Peak Alerts system? For us, it's anything that is related to an emergency that dispatch is actually sending out. So examples would be fire evacuations, flood evacuations, shelter in place notices, that kind of thing. Usually, like I said, it has to be sent out through the dispatch center. And so they don't send one out for everything. It's only when they have an emergency and they have to notify the public of it. 
Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And that is something as a community member that I would love to have. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you guys go out to like farmers markets and schools to talk about this kind of thing, or I guess peak alerts would be more geared towards like adults, right? It's more towards adults. Yeah. Schools, we have a good social media push. We've done stuff with the radio and partnered with some local news stations, did a billboard as well as the movie theaters. Am I missing anything else, Ben? No, I mean, the next door is one of them. That's yeah. a free way to get information out there. But that's a program and a campaign that's really big in our community because our community is sensitive to fire. We had two fires in two years in 2012 and 2013, where we lost almost a thousand homes. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, any way we can try to promote and get information out there for people to register for peak alerts, we try to, to make accommodations and get out to as many of those events as we can. Right. Yeah. So, Amanda, when we were talking before, you mentioned that your outreach program has a 911 mobile classroom. What is that? Tell me about it. Make a picture in my mind because this is podcast. Like, we'll also post pictures in the show notes, right? <laughs> but, like, help us visualize. Well, Ben and I recently remodeled that last year. We're going to start up our own little side business, we decided, and <laughs> redo trailers. <laughs> Maybe do a little electrical work. I forget what we're calling it. It's called Can't See It From My House. <laughs> so if we messed up anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we recently remodeled the inside. But when you walk into the trailer on the left hand side is a little kitchen and it has a bunch of sound effects and lights and fog machines, as well as smoke alarms, fire detectors. It simulates a kitchen fire and then it can also do some weather notifications and stuff. And then on the other side is a it looks like a kid's or a teenager's bedroom and there's a a heated door, a bunch of fog machines, again, the fire alarms. And so what we'll do is we'll usually start in the kitchen with kids and we'll talk about some safety things and what to do if you hear a fire alarm. And then we'll have them continue on through the bedroom. We'll talk to them a little bit more about checking doors and that kind of thing and talk about, you know, where exactly you're going to contact 911, which would be outside. And then we have them go out a window and to a safe meeting place and talk about the ways to contact 911. So that's a little bit about the trailer. But as far as the history of the trailer, it was around before I started at the authority. So Ben can kind of provide some more insight on how we got such a fancy piece of equipment. Yeah, the, the trailer, the safety component is what we were missing in the education piece of our outreach. You can talk to a child, a lecture, and show movies and talk about when and how to contact 911, but we were missing the safety component. So in the late 90s, the authority board helped our local fire department purchase a trailer similar to this. Again, in the late 90s, the technology wasn't what it was in this in this particular vehicle that we have now. But they ran that program successfully until our economy started tanking out like in 2008, 2009. And they came over here and said, hey, since you guys helped us buy this, would you like to take it over? And we had to mull that one over because at the time, contract employees, we didn't even have authority-owned vehicles. I had no way to pull it. So I said, sure, reluctantly, <laughs> and didn't realize how much work they were. And we got a donated vehicle from the city, and we started running it and became very, very successful. We had a very, very 
large amount of requests to have that vehicle brought out. But after two years of running it, the cost involved of keeping it up and running was starting to outweigh the benefit of that vehicle. So there was a point in the authorities' history where they had, uh, I don't want to use the word surplus, but they had money that was not being spent, that was being collected, and there was a little bit in an account, and everyone saw that, and we had a lot of people coming to the authority asking them to purchase things that maybe we wouldn't purchase with 911 funds. And, I mean, it could have been anything from a radio to, I don't even remember the request, but I sat in the back thinking to myself, now's the time to upgrade this bad boy. If people are making requests in the millions, I'll quote one out here and see what it costs to get a trailer. So I sent off a quote to a vendor, and they specced out this 28-foot two-bedroom trailer that we have now. And I went and found a tow vehicle for it, and I proposed it to the board and told them what we had been doing and what the benefit is to the community to have this, and that we could still use it for collaboration with the fire departments. And at the end of my five to seven minute ramblings, they all looked at each other and said, any questions? And they said, nope. And they said, you go buy your truck and trailer. So now we have the fancy state-of-the-art trailer that simulates fire. We can do fire extinguisher training with a laser-driven extinguisher in there, put what? out a trash can or a stove. Yeah, Amanda. Yep. Lasers. Lasers. What year is this? <laughs> right. We're like from the future. You you guys are living in 3021. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> There's a huge sound system in it. It simulates severe weather. So tornado, flood, earthquake, and I forgot the other one. Tornado, flood, earthquake. At any rate, severe weather. It's loud. It shakes. Mm -hmm. the, the power flickers inside. It's awesome. There's three cordless phones in there that can be used to make 911 calls. You put somebody on the other end, let them actually dial it and send it. So I love it. That's one of my favorite displays that we run. And we've actually gotten 911 Hero Awards or 911 Hero candidates from that program. We had one out on the west side of town. A third grader came through two weeks later, dryer fire in his house. He did almost everything we taught him. He had a pretty good grasp on it, but he was able to get outside to the, the curb and he dragged his two giant dogs out with him and uh, any life saved off an of education program is money well spent in my eyes. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool that you got to hear about that kid, right, who had gone through the training and knew what to do. Because I imagine like dispatchers, you guys don't get a lot of closure, right? You see so many kids and you probably don't have a lot of them come back and say, hey, by the way, this impacted my life this way. So that's that's really cool that it's kind of an extension of that dispatch culture almost. For sure. You should also share the two kids that kept going through the trailer. Oh, yeah. That was a good one, too. I don't remember who was with me, but we were at the – there was a mall here north of town. They had a safety fair in their parking lot. So there was a bunch of fire and police apparatus, bomb trucks, and we were out there. But they had a really nice display set up, and toward the end of the day – Anyone that does public education in the community knows when you're outside on blacktop in the summer, you're hot, you're miserable, and you're ready to go home at the end of the day. So we're kind of slowly picking things up, and this kiddo and his sister kept coming around. I don't remember how old they were. They weren't very old, seven and five maybe, I would guess. But he kept taking her through that trailer, and they were they get down low, they crawl, they go out the window, and they come back to the sign. And then the security guy said, you guys are trying to clean up. Do you want me to, to shoo them away? And I said, no, they're okay. We'll let them know when it's time for us to go and we have to shut it off, and they'll go on their way. And I didn't think anything of it, but I saw that head of security 
a couple months later. And he said, I've been trying to get a hold of you. And I didn't know how. And I said, why? Because those kids that he wanted to shoo away from the, the mobile classroom had been staying with relatives. So around the time winter was starting and I don't remember what caused the fire, but there was a fire in the house and he was the only one that knew what to do. And all five or however many of them that were in the house got out safely. So we'll chalk that one up as a win too, because I was glad that we didn't make him leave and that he got to practice as much as he wanted to, especially with his little sister. That's so cool. And like you said, it's money well spent. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about money, which may be gauche, maybe a little bit tacky in some circles. But if there is one thing that public safety agencies don't have enough of, especially 911, especially, you know, dispatch, it's money. Where do you guys get funding for your program? Ben, you talked about the experience of, you know, there there was an extra money lying around, but you, you floated the idea of, hey, let's upgrade this trailer. Where do you get money to continue doing what you're doing? The budget that Amanda and I work from, it's a small, very small line item in the grand picture of the whole 911 Authority's budget. But the money that that funds this program comes from the $1.35 emergency telephone charge on wireline and wireless and prepaid cell phones. Mm-hmm. Locally, it generates like $12.1 million or maybe even a little more. And Amanda and I take the small amount that we're allotted and we figure out what it costs to run the various programs that we do in a year and then do a little tweaking to add some public service announcements sprinkled in there. And that's what we have to run on throughout the year. But we don't run on grants or donations or anything. It's all that emergency telephone charge that shows up on folks' phone bill for 911 service. And that amount varies, you know, I think state to state. So it might vary. And then, you know, something else that I didn't really think about was that for some towns like tourist towns or, you know, college towns, you might not have a whole lot of residents there. That 911 charge goes off of or tax goes off of the subscriber's address. So for some of those really busy places, they might not be getting that 911 funding. It might be going elsewhere. Right. Yeah. Locally here, I mean, that that could be affected by the one, two, three, four, how many military bases we have, four or five. I think how transient that population is, that money may not necessarily come here. But, I mean, we're able to provide cutting-edge technology and excellent 911 service and community outreach with the money that we do get. So, Right, exactly. Do you know how you first were able to tap into that money? Because I know a lot of 911 centers, they don't even know where to start. They know that the 911 tax exists and that there is money out there, but they're not sure how to get into it. Are you talking about as far as to fund a program? Yeah. In our case, I mean, I'm kind of lucky because when I started here, that was already established. It was a line mm-hmm. in their budget. It was a super small amount, but we've been able to grow our programs. And and I'm happy to say it has not really increased in the 13 years I've been doing this. It hasn't increased exponentially. Mm-hmm. But if anyone's looking to, to start programs or they're looking for money on ways to fund it, uh, and this is just the opinion of Ben Bills and maybe not that of the authority, is that find free resources first. Develop a program, test the concept, and then 
show that that it was effective mm -hmm. and then maybe look at trying to fund it because if you try to get money with no proof of concept or test that it's going to work it might kind of fall a little bit flat because most places will request it from local like city and county commissioners or if there's a governing body like the uh, 911 authority they'd request money from there but it does pay to have your ducks in a row and have a proof of concept ready to go before you would make any sort of request to fund mm -hmm. a program. And just like Ben said, the structure is different, you know, like region to region, state to state. The way that ours is structured is that the 911 funds go to the El Paso Teller County 911 Authority. We have a board that consists of members that represent different districts. You know, we have people that are representing fire, police, small communities, Military and special districts, they have representatives yep. for Teller County, the city of Colorado Springs, and citizens mm -hmm. of El Paso County. So it's kind of like a wide variety of folks that they represent. Right. And then they have the final say on how that money or that budget is spent. And then the authority through that funds different types of technology and things with the dispatch centers, the seven PSAPs. So but it's different, you know, just because ours is structured this way doesn't mean that it's the same in in other counties and regions. Right, exactly. And that's, again, one of the very hard things about 911 and first response is that what you're doing in this county here might not be what's happening in the next county over mm -hmm. or, you know, even in the surrounding areas. So, yeah, you just have to mm -hmm. figure out what works for your location, which is frustrating. But also, you know, you can make it fun. Mm -hmm. You can be creative about it. Right. But just like what Ben said, you know, really do your research, have all of your stuff in a row, maybe do some research on where the funding is and that kind of structure, the dynamic. For us, public can attend the board meetings and they can see exactly, you know, or I don't know right now with COVID if they can attend, but they can definitely get recordings. But you can see where that money is being allocated and if they have any kind of technology things that are taking priority. So really do your research in that way on top of what Ben said with your program starting small, you know, having quotes and prices and spreadsheets and all of that. And one of the things I wanted to talk about was free resources out there for dispatchers. You don't have to start from scratch, right? I'm sure everyone knows about 911.org and Cell Phone Sally and Ready Fox, right? You can start with that. Ben, are there any particular resources that the National Public Safety Educators Forum issues or that are available? The National Public Safety Educator Forum, so it used to target just 911 education, and we decided that it's important to branch out and make sure it's all inclusive because essentially we're, we're all relaying the same message or it's very similar when it comes to contacting 911. There is a drop box that the National Public Safety Educator Forum has that we can share resources in. I, we don't have it posted on our website right now, but I don't remember how many people submitted to that. I went through and cleaned some of it up because it was starting to age, but mm -hmm. you're right. There's no sense in reinventing the wheel. If people want to share and collaborate, 911 is not a copyrighted product. So, I mean, calling 911 or texting 911 will be the same almost anywhere. This Dropbox will contain information or brochures if you need one. 
going to download one out of the Dropbox and you can maybe tweak it and make it more personalized for your area. And now you have something to go on rather than start from scratch. Again, that's not posted yet, but we're in the process of cleaning it up and posting our post-conference stuff. People are probably confused. How does that guy know about NPEF so much? So I'm the president of that organization too, as a volunteer. It's an excellent resource to network with. It's got 2,200 members that you can bounce ideas off of all across the country. If someone has a uh, public safety education whoa let's say they're trying to figure out how do i get some how do i get an emergency notification system for opt-ins program off the ground we can send out a mass emailing to all the members and direct all the responses back to whoever wants to get that information so I would think it's a largely untapped resource because I don't think a a lot of people know about it, but our membership seems to be growing, especially recently. Yeah, that's huge, right? Because not only do you have the experience of someone with, you know, 21 years of dispatch experience, but you also have the experience of 2,200 other people, which is amazing. That's incredible. That's really cool. How can people find NPEF? NPEF, you can go to our website and become a member. There's a button at the bottom of the page. The URL is 911npef.org. The website's in the process of getting a makeover for our annual conferences. We just finished one, our first virtual, but the conference comes back in July of 2022. It's in Austin, Texas. It's probably one of the most affordable conferences you'll see out there. The registration, we keep it super low and try to get as many sponsors as possible to keep it affordable for public safety because just as you said before, there's not a lot of money that people put into these kind of projects for public education, but it's four days of well, three and a half days of interactive sessions. Everybody's in the same room. You see the same speakers. There's also a networking event. So you get to meet everybody and bounce ideas and collaborate. And then we also assign everybody a project. So we create sometimes PSAs or a video, or uh, there's a lot of different ways. It's uh, it's called the Think Outside the Box Workshop. And you work on it throughout that whole conference. And at the end, we present them all back. Sometimes they're pretty humorous, but in the end, if you check out our YouTube channel, they're all on their uh, NPEF's YouTube channel. They have a bunch of public service announcement that they've made, and some of them are pretty hilarious. The thing that I also like about NPEF is that throughout the year, you can ask questions or try to get help, and NPEF will send out you know, an email to everybody that's part of that email mailing list. And I mean, I've responded to some people directly, you know, they'll say, Hey, here's my email. If you have any ideas, reach out. And so you can continue on networking throughout the year and getting ideas and help essentially. So I think that's the best part is it's not just the one week or a couple days. It's like throughout the year. And I think you guys are still doing that, right, Ben? We are. Yep. We do. That's really cool. And I will have links to the YouTube channel and the website and just all relevant links in the show notes for sure. Sweet. And our website also has uh, worksheets and stuff for kids and things that you can download. Sorry, Ben. Go ahead. I just want to make it known that on the YouTube channel, if there's a PSA with a building getting lit on fire made of paper, we did that with the utmost safety in mind. Okay. Noted. Noted. (laughs) Do not try this at home. Experts only. Trained (laughs) professionals. (laughs) <laughs> trained trained mischief makers only Ben Bills I see you <laughs> somebody somebody recreated a traffic accident but it's like a quick shot and somebody's laying across a windshield yeah. it's it's ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> 
funny. Well, I'm going to go check those out as soon as we're done recording. Nice. So to wrap up, what is one thing that listeners, whether they are supervisors or line dispatchers, what's one thing they can do to better connect with their communities? I would probably say just do some, like we have kind of talked about earlier, just do some research and know what issues are most prevalent, whether it's accidental calls, kids playing on the phone, that kind of thing. And then once you kind of have that idea, maybe look at some different ways to address it. But most importantly, I would say just get out there, maybe step outside your comfort zone and get used to the sound of your voice. I know when you're a dispatcher, we like to hide, or I used to like to hide behind a headset and I never wanted to be seen. But, you know, the best way to reach a community is just being more visible, getting out there, going to events, maybe collaborating and partnering up with other agencies or the fire department. We do a lot of shadows with our fire department here and try to attend a lot of events together. Just coming in unified helps. Yeah. So start small. Again, I kind of echo some of what Amanda said. Start small. When I first started here, They had a program, we're talking 25 presentations a month, maybe if that, but I mean, I, I personally think if you have the staffing and you have some downtime in your 911 center and you can maybe come up with a little worksheet and say, Hey, we're going to go, we're going to buy the, the cell phone Sally oversized book. And it's, I don't remember how much it is. It's 50 or 70 bucks, but you know, for this little investment of a hundred bucks and we'd like to go teach or read to maybe three or four kindergarten classes, put out a survey, get some feedback, and then see if maybe we can start an official program. I think that's great. I mean, plus it gets your mind going while you're at work. It keeps you fresh. But I also think going out and reaching the community as a 911 dispatcher, as we all know, that job just burns people out with the quickness. And I have seen the most calloused of curmudgeons come out of dispatch and I'm like, oh, who are they sending out here with us today? And I'm thinking, how is this going to go? And the, some little kid asks about their job or a question about 911 and they're a totally different person. I think it's kind of therapeutic for them. So I, it's super important, I think, to get out in the community, especially for the, the folks out there under the headset that are never really seen by the public. And you can have a lot of fun with it. It doesn't cost a lot of money to do it. And there's free resources out there, 911mpf.org. And it's great. Do it. Well, fantastic. I've had so much fun talking with you two today. And like I said, there will be resources in the show notes. And again, if you have any questions about Dispatch in Depth or ideas for topics or a guest that you would like to see on the podcast, go ahead and email us at dispatchindepth at emergencydispatch.org. And with that, I will say goodbye to you both. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Bye. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dispatch in Depth. Remember, it really helps if you rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dispatch in Depth is hosted by me, Becca Barris. I'm also the technical director and producer, and Matthew Maiko is the executive producer. 